this is a, a very important time for us as a body, as a church. And a lot of people call this the Super Bowl. And I always hated that because this one Sunday is not the Super Bowl. I think any time that we come to celebrate, to worship together corporately, it is way bigger than any Super Bowl. Would you agree with me on that? Like, we should be talking about the resurrection every single Sunday. Paul says that we need to be preaching Christ crucified and resurrected because there's power in the resurrection. So the next few moments tonight, I, I want to just open our eyes to a concept, and I don't want you to, to lose track when I say what this is, but I, I just want you to, to hang tight for the next few moments because I want to teach us a concept, a theological concept that I think as believers we need to fully understand, and if we can fully understand this tonight, we will embrace the cross like we never have before, but I also believe we will celebrate on Sunday like we never have before, amen? I want to talk to you about a word called substitutionary atonement, all right? Did I lose some of you already? Listen, if you feel like that's a big word for you, thank God for spell check, because every time I typed it, I had to look up and make sure it was right. But I want to talk to you. Now, this is a really big word, but I want to break it down, and then I'm going to show you a picture of this in the scripture, okay? You with me? So substitutionary atonement basically means this, that Jesus Christ dying as a substitute for sinners. Really easy. Really easy. It is Jesus dying as our substitute. There, there are two words here. We have the word atonement, which needs, means this, that, that we need God to pardon us for our sin. We need him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Sinners who need to be forgiven. We need atonement. But you also have this word substitute. This is Jesus taking on our sin. In exchange, he gives us righteousness. It seems like he got the short end of the deal. But he takes on our sin so that we can have righteousness. Or, we'll break that word down, to be in right standing with God. That we can approach God and get the thumbs up that everything is good. That we have relationship, open relationship with the Father. Let me, let me show you what this looks like in the scripture, okay? So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 27. And we're going we're to study this passage and just pull it apart for a few minutes. I want to show you some things that hopefully will, will make you think, will bring some tension into your life, will help you grow in this area of worship towards God and the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, it says this, Now at the feast... The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom he wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Say that with me. Barabbas. I want you to remember this guy. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Do you want Barabbas? Or do you want Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy. Remember that word. That it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him and said, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in my dreams. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Give us Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this man named Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? 
What evil has this man done? What has he done? But they shouted all the more, let Jesus the Christ be crucified. Now I want to give you two insights into this text. This is the first insight, that Jesus took our place. Jesus took our place. Now, he physically took Barabbas' place. You would agree with that? Physically, he takes Barabbas' place, but spiritually, he has taken our place, our place on the cross. It was customary, as we read in this passage, for the Roman Empire to give one person who they felt was deserving a second shot at life. And so here we are at this court of Jesus, which was, by the way, illegal, the way that they were operating here. But they, they have this custom that at this court, they have the right to give and set free one prisoner every year. Now, this was shown as a sign of mercy. That's, that's a word that doesn't really go with Rome. They were not very merciful people. They were actually very cruel and hostile. They, they, I mean, the capital punishment, when we look at the crucifixion and what they've done through crucifixion, you're like, mercy, come on. But just to kind of show the people that we, we do have a little bit of mercy, there's a little bit of human inside of us, they would allow this one prisoner to go through and to be, to be set free. And so the person that is selected here is this man named Barabbas. Now, I want you to understand something. Barabbas is a rebel. Mark, in the book of Mark, calls him a rebel, okay? Not, not a good dude. The other thing you need to understand about Barabbas is he's in prison, which means he has been convicted. Not only has he been convicted, he's also been sentenced. His sentence, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be crucified at the hands of the Romans. So he's been issued the death penalty. So at first in the text, we see that they don't, they don't want Barabbas, they want Jesus. But we hear him calling Barabbas, but in, in truth, they really wanted Jesus to be set free first. But something happened. Look at this verse. It said, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Do you want me to give you Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now, he knows the religious leaders are up to something. Something's, something's a little fishy here because they bring this man who's innocent. He's not done anything. He's just been falsely accused of some things. And so the Romans aren't crazy. And you've got to remember this too. The Romans and the Jewish religious leaders are working together. The reason that the Jewish religious leaders have a job is because the Romans have hired them and put them in place. And so... The key word that we have to remember here is the word I told you, envy. Because envy is the idea of having displeasure with someone, uh, having displeasure with someone else, having something that you don't want them to have. That they had displeasure and envy in Jesus because they didn't want Jesus to have this power. All of a sudden, people are following him. They're listening to his teachings. They're not talking about temple worship as much as they are this Messiah that has come out of the Galilee to preach this message and proclaim that he is the Messiah. So they saw Jesus as taking away the power and taking away the people. Okay, are y'all following me here? There, it was a threat. They saw Jesus as a direct threat to Judaism. So in their insecurity, they want to destroy Jesus. What is it going to take 
for us to partner with the Romans to get them to create some type of punishment so that we can get rid of this guy because he's ruining our business. He's taking our people away. He's taking our money away. He's calling us out on our teachings. So what are, what are we have to do? Now, there's a, there's a very important verse in verse 19. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but in verse 19, it says that Pilate's wife, guys, y'all, y'all listen to me. Pilate's wife told him not to get involved because the Lord had already been working on her and said, hey, don't do this. And she said that I've been dreaming about this dude and my dreams have not been very good. We, I, I get the feeling that we should probably take our hands off of this. This is not a situation for us to be involved in. So the servant, the Roman servant comes and tells him, hey, your wife said not to do this. And while he is talking, he has been distracted. And and now that he's distracted, the chief priests begin to convince the people to change their vote. Look in verse 20. It says, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Because at first it was like, duh, Barabbas is a killer. He's convicted. This guy's not done anything. But as Pilate is having this private conversation, the religious leaders are saying things like, hey, are you sure? Are you sure? Because this guy says he's going to destroy the temple. Like He's going to destroy everything that we have. That he's going to take everything away from you. That you're not going to have anything. He, he's proclaiming to be God. This guy's got to be crazy. And then all of a sudden, everything shifts. Because they're saying, don't ask for Barabbas. What we're going to do is we're going to ask for Jesus because Jesus is a troublemaker. And this troublemaker is going to cost us everything. So what do they begin doing? They begin changing their vote. Pilate is oblivious to what is happening. And he asked the question, who do you want? Do you want Barabbas or Jesus? And and by the way, this was a part of God's sovereign plan the whole time. Even in the midst of the evil that is taking place in this story, God is sovereign at work using it for glory. And so they say and they begin chanting, give us Barabbas. Here's your second insight. Jesus took our sin. He took our sin. In verse 26, he says this, then he released for them Barabbas. And then they they beat Jesus. So having beat him, they delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the entire battalion before him. They, They bring him to the governor's home after he has been beaten And they bring the entire battalion around them. This battalion of soldiers would have been about 600 soldiers around Jesus. And they thought, some theologians have said this, that they thought Jesus was just a village idiot, a lunatic. This dude's going around telling people that he is God, that he's a king. So the Jewish leaders are trying to use this against him. Again, all while God is being sovereign. So this dude thinks he's a king, he thinks he's just, he thinks he's going to have all this power and authority. So what do these soldiers begin to do? Well, the Bible tells us they begin to mock him. They begin to throw him on the floor and hit him and like, hey, prophesy, tell tell us who did it. You're king, 
If you're king, won't you show yourself to be king? So they mock him. Look at what it says in verse 28. They stripped him, shame, and they put a scarlet, okay? They put a what? Remember that word? They put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of what? Thorns. Remember scarlet and thorns. They put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. And they put his own clothes back on him and they led him away to be crucified. Again, God's sovereignty is at play here. The actions of these soldiers, they, they are just doing what they do. They're mocking. They're being soldiers. They're causing pain. But unknowingly, they're painting a picture for you and me of substitutionary atonement. I want you to see through the lens of the Old Testament. We, when we read the Bible in the New Testament, we have to sometimes look through the lens of the Old Testament to understand what is actually taking place. So after they whip Jesus, they take him and they place this wool scarlet robe on his back. This is the back that has just been beat up pretty bad. There's multiple lacerations. He was beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails had nine tails to a whip, and they would dip it in bone or, or broken pottery, and they would glue it to the whip, and they would hit you and then snatch it, and it would rip anything that you had in its path. 39 times. And they, they beat him and put this robe, this heavy wool robe on his back. I don't know where the robe came from. I don't know if it belonged to a soldier. If, if, you know, I don't know. But what I do know is the Bible is very specific to tell us that it was a scarlet robe, purple and reddish in color. Why is that important? Well, the word scarlet in the scripture is used 52 times throughout the Bible. And the word is always connected to sin. Always connected to sin. So one of the passages that we see this in is Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 where it says this. Though your sins are like what? Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. Scarlet was gotten by crushing a worm and getting the dye for the garment by crushing the worm. The picture that you see here is not just a random robe being put on Jesus' back. It's Jesus taking sin on his back. We can prove this in 1 Peter chapter 2 because it says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was clothed in our sins, bore them in his body on the tree so that you and I that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds we're healed. Isn't the Bible amazing? Isaiah didn't know. He just heard what God told him to write and he writes it. The soldiers had no idea. They didn't even believe in God. And God uses them to paint this picture that Jesus in this scarlet robe is, is taking on the sins of us, of you and me, in this moment. So he's, he's wrapped in scarlet, just like sin. 
But that's not everything, because the text tells us that the same soldiers go to a bush and they begin grabbing some thorns. And we're talking thick thorns. And they create for Jesus a crown. They take these thorns and they move them around and they get them in the right size and they jam these thorns down on the head of Jesus. Now you have to stop and ask yourself when you're reading the scripture, if there's specific words like scarlet that really stand out, there's a reason for it. And when you find words like thorns, you've got to ask the question, where's the first time that this word is ever mentioned in the scripture? Well, the first time we ever see the word thorn mentioned in the scripture is going to be found in Genesis chapter 3. Anybody remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3? It all went downhill. Remember? Adam and Eve in the garden. They're in the garden of Eden. And this is the first time that the word thorn is introduced in the scripture. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, and these, these are going to be consequences, because remember what just happened was they ate of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. So God's given out the consequences. And, he, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, don't take that the wrong way. Because by the way, Adam was standing at the tree and watched her do it and didn't do anything as a husband to stop that. And Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat of, cursed is the ground because of you and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The first thing that is produced out of the curse of sin are thorns. Did y'all know that? The first thing that is brought out, the first consequence. Thorns in the scripture are always connected with a curse. And we were under the curse of sin. And Jesus takes our sin and puts it on himself and he takes this curse of thorns on his head. The Bible says in Galatians, Paul writes this in chapter 3 of verse 13. He says, God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So God wants us to see that this is not a random thing that's taking place here. This is not a random crown. This is not a random robe that is happening. This is Jesus wrapping himself in sin taking upon himself the curse that was meant for you and meant for me. But that's not all. There's more in this story, because earlier we introduced this guy named too, Barabbas. Barabbas. Barabbas is not, I don't think, is just a man in the story. I think Barabbas is a representative of all mankind. Barabbas is you... And me. If we'll contrast Jesus and Barabbas, Barabbas is guilty, he is charged, he is given death, he's awaiting death on the cross, he can't free himself, he's going to need someone to do that for him. On the other hand, Jesus is an innocent man who has lived a perfect life, and at any moment he can set himself free from all of this. He tells the disciples that in the garden. After Peter decides to have a, a sword fight, and he says, hey, dude, I, I can call down thousands of angels at any point in time that I want to. 
I could, I could handle this. But he didn't. And so Jesus at any moment could free himself of this situation. He, he could just say, God, thank you. It's been a nice, you know, 33 years here. I'm ready to come home. And, and in that moment could have left, but he stays. Luke 23 tells us something fascinating. The same crime that Barabbas has already been convicted of is the same crime that Jesus is being accused of. You know what that was? They tried to, they, they were being blamed like Barabbas physically led an insurrection to try to overthrow government. Jesus is being accused of that. That, that this guy is crazy and he's trying to overthrow because he was from a place called Galilee and specifically was living in Capernaum and that place was known for rebels, terrorists who were out to take care of the Romans. And the Jewish people, the leaders in Jerusalem knew this. So they tried to use that against them. They were both accused of trying to start an uprising against Israel. So they share the exact same charges, meaning that Jesus is about to die on the cross that was reserved for Barabbas. It wasn't even his cross. And this is the day of death. This is the day that they already have the cross ready for Barabbas. It's already there on the hillside. It's waiting. This is the moment but Jesus is about to become the substitute so Barabbas doesn't have to face the death. They exchange places here. So Jesus is about to pay the price for the exact same crime. And he pays the price for our sins. The name Barabbas is a very interesting name. I don't know if you've ever done a, a word study on names of Scripture, but Barabbas is. Anytime we see the word bar... That means son of, right? Bartholomew, son of who? Yeah, there you go. Very simple. So they would always add bar to it. This is, a, this is how it works. In the Hebrew, the word bar, son of, but I want you to watch this. Bar is, is son of, and the word abbas, rabbis, right? Abbas is the Hebrew word abba. Father, son of the Father. You tracking with me? Son of the Father. He's a representative of all the sons and the fathers who are descendants of Adam. And let me give you some further proof. In Matthew 27, 16, he says this. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. If you stop right there and look in your scriptures and many of your Bibles, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny little letter right beside the word Barabbas. And it's going to send you to the bottom of your page. And if you, if you look at that and you find that and you drop to the bottom of your page, it'll say, Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. The man's name it's not Barabbas. His name is Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. G Jesus, Jesus? Yeah. Jesus, Jesus. So in a sense, Barabbas is a type of son who are descendants of Adam. So under the curse, we need Jesus to take our place, right? So when Pilate says, which Jesus do you choose... He's asking, which Jesus do you want? Are you going with the Jesus Barabbas? That's us. 
Are you choosing to save yourself from your sin? And if you choose yourself, then you have to pay the own wages of sin. And we know the Bible tells us that the wages of sin are what? We can't pay that. We can't pay it. So Jesus Barabbas cannot save anybody. But what about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? That's, that's the right choice, right? Because which Jesus are you going to choose? Because if the sacrifice for your sin is yourself, then the Bible is clear that you're going to be separated from God. But if you accept Christ, then you're going to have an assurance that Jesus is forever. I want you to, to think about this for a moment. I want you to imagine with me Barabbas is sitting in that prison cell. He woke up that morning knowing that this is the day. This is the day that I'm going to be crucified. This is the day that I'm going to have to pay for the penalty of sin. I can imagine him sitting in this cold prison cell, just rubbing his hands, knowing that in just a few moments, these rusty spikes are going to go right through him. Looking at his feet, knowing that my feet are going to be in so much pain in a little bit when they drive that spike through it, that my back's going to be hurting because they're going to beat me. They're going to torment me. People are going to walk by this cross and they're going to yell insults at me. They're going to spit at me. They're going to snatch my beard off my face. The pain that he knows this is coming. And he is sitting there and all of a sudden through the corridors of the prison, he hears what he thinks is his name being yelled over and over and over again. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Then he hears the jailer walk down the corridors with his keys and unlocks the prison and takes Barabbas to the courtyard. And he looks, and among the mob he sees a man who has been beaten and battered and bloody. And this man has the same name that I do. And Pilate yells out, do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus the Christ? And when he, he hears his name, he's in disbelief of what has happened because I woke up today knowing that I was going to die. And he's in disbelief of, of what's about to take place. But I have to believe something about Barabbas. And I believe that when he hears his name, he's not only in disbelief, I believe that we know that there were people at the foot of the cross. We know Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the cross, but we also know John was there. I believe Barabbas was at the foot of that cross that day. Because they released him and told him, you're free to go. And I believe he stood among that mob listening, hearing that there was one who was innocent that was going to die for the sins of the people. Barabbas. In a, in a very real way, Barabbas is the only man that can say that Jesus took his physical place. And anybody that is trusted in Jesus through faith can actually say that Jesus took our spiritual place. We deserve judgment, but Jesus received it. We deserve death, but Jesus absorbed it. We should be led to hell, but Jesus helped us avoid it. This doctrine is so important because 
when we think about there was a substitutionary atonement that Jesus took my place, that I should have to suffer for my sin, but Jesus took my sin and my shame to the cross. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we could become the sons of righteousness. I believe that when we understand this and we realize that the cross had our names on it. That was our cross. Those were our nails. That was our hammer. And I believe that when we realize that and we come to the cross, the bloodstained cross, it demands a response of worship. The deal with salvation is in order to receive a gift, you have to have open hands and my question to you is have you accepted the substitutionary atonement tonight we're, we're going to pause everything that's in our minds outside of here this, whatever you brought in here I just want you to push that to the side for a second because here's what I want your focus to be in these next few moments that there was a penalty for your life that you couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus said, I got this one. And he paid in full. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And not life later on, but right here in this moment, salvation. He says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, in this moment. That dude didn't go to church. That dude was not in a disciple group. He didn't get baptized. He didn't know anything about a Bible, didn't own a Bible. Bibles didn't exist, didn't even have a scroll. But Jesus said today, because of your faith, not because of the things that you do, but because of your faith, you'll be with me today. You've received salvation. So my question again is, have you accepted the substitute that was for your sin? If you have, express that. Because there are many, many will darken the doors of this place this weekend. Not understanding this. And will encounter Jesus for the first time. We're praying for them. Many of you here tonight, maybe you've, you've not accepted that atonement, that substitute. Tonight could be the night that you just tell Jesus, save me and believe. And I want to pray for us as we sing and then we're going to take communion together. So Father, I, I thank you for thank you for your son. Lord, that we should be the ones that pay the price, but you, through your grace and mercy and your love for us, your unconditional love for us, you sent your son in our place. May we never lose sense of that wonder. That your love for us completely decimated sin's grip on us. So Lord, as we process this Good Friday, it's good for us because we didn't have to stand in that place. You stood for us. May as we worship, we reflect on you, hear from you, and God sing a little bit louder, lift our hands a little bit higher, and praise you for who you are, the God that provides. We pray these things in your name.